you know, every time I walk into the gym, it's always like insanely packed with Asian men. Um, or a lot of the Asian men I see, you know, they always like really work out a lot. And that's because, yeah, you know, being an Asian man, especially in Western society, like it's a super emasculated experience. Uh, I don't know, like, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people have heard it before, but a lot of Asian men really aren't seen as, you know, men in a hegemonic sense, a traditionally masculine sense. And welcome back to the Color Reimagined podcast presented to you by People of Color Clothing. And of course, I'm your host, Darius, and I sit down with special guest Jeffrey, where we talk about growing up biracial, imposter syndrome, and Asian male masculinity. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. You know, just to kind of get the conversation kicked off and started, won't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Jeffrey Engel. So I'm a second year at Oregon State University right now. Uh, I'm studying merchandising management. Yeah, go Bees, um, with a minor in sociology. So um, it's a pretty fun duo. I'm really interested in like the intersection between fashion and DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, kind of focusing on how those big companies and corporations can make more positive social impact. Um, mm. the, you know, getting a little more personal. Uh, so I'm 19. My mom's adopted from Korea when she was an infant, uh, adopted into a white family. My dad's white. It's a pretty, you know, common interracial marriage kind of trope but yeah so i was raised in that environment i'm from portland anyone who's been to portland or knows portland at least west portland knows uh what's that what's that like yeah so, yeah. yeah all right for sure um and i know we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about your mother and that dynamic in regards to her being adopted as an infant um and that kind of leading up to you know your experience so can you kind of let the the audience in on your mother and her background definitely yeah so she was adopted from south korea when she was an infant uh the family she was adopted into entirely white uh and historically wealthy white family too everybody was doctors a pretty nuclear family thing in portland so growing up she was pretty isolated from her you know her ethnic heritage i guess you can call it uh, I think she's been to Korea once, but obviously being in the family she was a part of, she was really culturally isolated from it. Um, growing up, yeah, she had a pretty normal childhood and then married my dad, who's a white man. Uh, then they had me and my sister. All right, for sure. And then just kind of, I know this is kind of speaking for your mother, but do you do you feel like any point in her life, even maybe leading up to her trip to Korea, that she took it upon herself to kind of navigate her Korean culture? Or was it just something that she, I guess, embraced the white culture and just kind of stayed in that pocket? Or was it that curiosity every emerging um, for her and even for you? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, you know, obviously I'm speaking for her. I can't be entirely accurate. Um, but yeah, I would say from what I've seen, she really didn't do a lot of that navigating Korean culture when she was younger. Um, but I would say, you know, around post 2020, it's a really common experience for a lot of uh, a lot of people of color who are, you know, culturally isolated. Um, she did start kind of leaning into her Korean culture a little bit more and kind of exploring what's there, you know, mostly BTS and whatnot. But it's still something to, to do. It was around the time when I started navigating my culture. Um, it was about two, three years ago when I started getting interested in, uh, you know, kind of what Korea and generally East Asia had to offer culturally, kind of mm -hmm. connecting there. So we've kind of started doing that a little bit together. But growing up, yeah, she really did just lean into the, um, well, I mean, as much as a person of color can into the white environment. So, Jeff, we kind of, you know, now that we learn a little bit about your mother, um, can you kind of speak to your experience growing up as a first gen, you know, Asian American with uh, a strong 
white social tie and what that experience was like for you um and what are some of the, like the the experience that you kind of miss because of that yeah um it was really interesting in, in terms of how i saw myself uh in terms of racialization right mm-hmm. growing up when i heard stories about you know first-gen asian asian americans or children of immigrants a lot of the experiences i didn't really relate to at all um mm-hmm. like you know people talk about language barriers or having to translate for their, their parents that uh, parent-teacher conferences. I never had that because, you know, my mom doesn't speak Korean. Her experiences were, oh, like, I brought this food and, like, everybody was teasing for that um, and mm-hmm. I felt alienated. You know, I had, like, Lunchables and, like, PB&J growing up because, you know, white family. Um, yeah. So it really led me to not really see myself as Asian, right? Because there was kind of a single-story narrative going around in, you know, generally America of this is what it means to be a first-gen individual. And I didn't reflect that. So I really struggled to... Um, to see myself as Asian. And as far as how that really impacted me, it was really destructive as a kid. Mm-hmm. I remember, um, you know, a lot of Asian kids growing up, they experienced a lot of racism in terms of uh, not like, not super violent, nothing, well, I'm not gonna say nothing horrible, but you know, a lot of comments made here and there. And I started at a certain point, not enjoying it, but I almost felt like a sense of relief to know that people saw me as Asian, right? Mm-hmm. I felt so alienated from this identity that in experiencing that explicit racism, it kind of felt validating. I was like, oh, you know, I am Asian. Oh, um, wow, okay. Yeah, and it kind of built this association that I definitely want to talk about a little bit more um, later on, but this association that to be Asian or to be a person of color was like synonymous with the experience of explicit racism. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty tough. Oh, uh, shit. It's interesting. So can you kind of explain or kind of help us help visualize your awakening. Like when did you have your awakening and take on that, that I guess that take on that Asian identity and take on that, I guess that desire to want to advocate for marginalized communities. Definitely. Um, I would say, so like I said, I'm 19, I'm a, I'm a sophomore. So probably around sophomore year of high school is when I started getting connected to, uh, you know, different cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mentioned it before, but it was K-pop pretty, pretty heavily, um, yeah. kind of looking at BTS. And it was really powerful in the sense where it was the first time I'd seen, you know, Asian people and especially Asian men be praised in any sort of media for like anything. Um, and, you know, I don't always want to like validate myself and my identity through other people's opinions, but it made me feel proud to be Asian for once. And I think having that pride maybe address this idea that, you know, I am Asian. But moving forward, um, it was the summer of 2020 when I really started, you know, starting my process of education, kind of looking at what my past experiences have been in relation to to racism. And what I really figured out that helped me drive it in is I kind of took a second and looked at, you know, I haven't considered myself to be a person of color. Why is that? So I kind of broke down what did I see as a person of color? So this is going to be a bit of a a ramble. So I apologize for that. But no, 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 no. This is your platform, man. Talk. Thank you. Yeah. So at Lincoln, I went to Lincoln High School in Portland. Uh, there was this club called Brothers of Color, right, which was generally supposed to support the identities of men of color. Uh, but when I looked at the demographic, it was entirely, or not entirely, but it was, I would say, 80 percent um, black or indigenous men of color. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of Asian people there. And that's totally, yeah, that's totally fine. But when I looked at that and I looked at that idea of, <clears throat> you know, this is what a man of color is, I didn't really see my identity reflected. And that kind of worked in combination with the way we talked about racism in school, because it was usually during MLK week. 
but the only <laughs> time we ever really talked about um, yeah, yeah. MLK Day or Black History Month, um, the only time we really talked about race was in the context of racialized violence, um, generally against Black people. So it kind of built this association. You know, the only time we talked about race was when explicit racism occurred. And so it built my understanding that to be a person of color was to experience explicit racism or any sort of racism. But obviously I didn't have the education to understand the racism that I'd experienced. So I only saw racism as explicit and I only saw the way to be a person of color as experiencing racism. Mm. So yeah, mm. which it's partly true for sure. You know, it's being, you know, on the oppressed end. But when I kind of broke that down and understood, you know, okay, I've kind of seen the ways these systems of power have impacted me. And I've kind of expanded my idea of this single story for, you know, being a person of color. You know, each individual is gonna have their intersections and their own nuances for what they've experienced. And it kind of helped me understand my own place in that that, you know, system. Kind of taking some time to unpack your story a little bit can you kind of speak to this this model minority myth and the i guess the whitewashing of asian american identity definitely um yeah i mean i kind of talked about how it was really hard for me to feel asian or identify as asian because i didn't fit these tropes mm -hmm. i would say in america or you know in general western society there are a lot of stereotypes that go around of what it means to be asian <clears throat> and I even think to a certain extent, it's perpetuated a lot by, you know, people who are Asian, specifically Asian American, in the sense where like, you know, Asian people are really good at math or love bubble tea. You know, I really love bubble tea. But, like, it's still a stereotype. Um, or like Asian people, like they all know about these foods or um, they all kind of like do this or this or that. And I think there's a two sided duality to that, right? Because on one hand, if you associate with that, it can be really supportive, right? You find these people with these shared experiences. And you can kind of bring yourself closer together from the other hand and i think this is what we'll see a lot as you know uh our racial our racial demographics start to become a lot more you know percentage-based it's not going to mm -hmm. be so like 50 100 this or that yeah. um a lot of people don't really associate with those experiences or you have people who have no connection to like those cultures and so i think for me, at least, it put a lot of pressure to start doing some of those things. I think that for a lot of Asian people, and I'm speaking, you know, on behalf, uh, I might be wrong. I want to mm -hmm. preface that. But for me, when I looked at these stereotypes that were talked about so often, it became a way for me to try to embrace those a little bit to feel more Asian in my own regard. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, okay, like, this is what it means to be Asian. Like, I got to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what it means to be Asian. Like, I should do this. Um, all the Asian people around me that I saw, they all, they all have the same idea, right? Like, Oh yeah, yeah, like bubble tea this, bubble tea that. Um, and so it really put a lot of pressure on me to try to kind of mold myself to fit this identity mm -hmm. instead of looking at what these, you know, these different cultures are and finding how they fit into my own role. Like I tried to force myself to fit the idea that they had of being Asian instead yeah, of navigating really, my own idea of what I meant to be. That's really that's really interesting. Like your background mm -hmm. being a segue of you trying to, I guess, seek that Asian identity within yourself and and really establish yourself. <clears throat> in that so it's really interesting to hear your story it's very unique um in the sense that you know you you embrace these things you know while there's people out there just trying to like you know hey no 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 you're like okay i'm embracing this because um this is what it this is what society says it's you know fits the asian culture identity etc and you know we've kind of heard you know a little bit about your mother's experience and her family dynamic leading up to your experience but i also understand just from like listening to you talk you kind of hinted at having a sister 
Um, can you kind of speak to her experience um, and maybe the cultural conundrum or the, the, the dynamic and how she's been able to kind of navigate her identity? Yeah, um, so it's been super interesting. It's definitely a different experience of mine, but not one that's unheard of. And obviously, you know, we're different genders, so that plays a role, but uh, her name's Madeline, but she's definitely put less of an effort into navigating, you know, her cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. um, that's not better, that's not worse, right? It just is what it is. Um, but, and this is an experience I've seen with a lot of my friends. She's kind of part of that group of people who their identity as a person of color hasn't brought explicitly or anything they're conscious of a richness or benefit to them, right? Because when you look mm -hmm. at um, the reasons we say, like, be proud of your background, like, be proud of your heritage, like, be proud of being Asian, it usually all traces back to, like, look at this culture you're from, look at this community you're part of. When you have these people who grew up basically white culturally in a culturally white environment and they don't have any connection to their cultural heritage they don't have any of that right so the only mm -hmm. association that they really have with being a person of color is oppression right like yeah. not being found attractive by their peers who maybe they do find attractive like you know madeline she likes white boys um but obviously white boys aren't really going to find her as attractive at least beyond a fetishizing way because she's not white um mm -hmm. or same with you know some of the some of the guys I'm friends with who are like Filipino, who are entirely separate from that. And so it kind of builds this idea of wishing you were white. Like I hear it all the time. Like I, sometimes I just wish I were white. And especially with the intersection of being Asian, um, like you said, uh, there's really not a lot of Asian people being praised in media, or at least not in a meaningful way for women beyond sexualization. Yeah, so sure. yeah, it really just builds this idea that like, wow, like there's really nothing good about being Asian in my opinion right now. Like, you know, I'm not seeing black beauty praised. I'm not seeing, you know, X, Y, Z. I'm not seeing myself in a position of athletics, which, you know, obviously is not great um, mm -hmm. exploitation of black bodies, but it's still, you know, something that you see praised from or it's something that you see role models. So I think for Madeline and for a lot of people, you don't have role models and you yeah, don't have this yeah. cultural connection and yeah. you don't have these benefits. So, yeah. you know, what's the benefit? Like I just wish I were white here. Um, Sheesh. Yeah, and I, I think it, I think it kind of takes back to like that that whitewashing within society because I know like even speaking to pri uh, previous guests like and them talk, talking about Asian culture in an Asian culture getting the double eyelid surgery using the, the soap to lighten your skin like it all kind of perpetuates itself into whitewashing right this idea that white is right um, definitely and it's just I don't know I think it's really interesting because. I, I don't know. I think we're so we are so beautiful as people of color, um, for sure. you know, aside from just like, you know, all the oppression talking on that other stuff. But just historically, like our, our history, we have such a hidden history, um, especially here in America. Kind of, you know, you talk yeah. like, you know, you only learn about, you know, the active the, the or the, the violence that kind of happened in the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King in February yeah. being like the, the, the year or the month of, you know, talking about, you know, marginalized communities. But I think, you know, we have a history um, and we come from brilliant, brilliant people, beautiful cultures. And that's something that's kind of lost in the transition, especially here in America, where we try to whitewash everything and, you know, ban critical rest, critical race theory and those type of tropes. So I think that, you know, it's your sister just sounds like she's a byproduct of like this system doing exactly what it's supposed to do in regards to whitewashing and hoping and wishing that you know you were you you were something that you are obviously not yeah um entirely i have yeah definitely two things really quick um do you know about the the origin of the um <clears throat> the double eyelid surgery 
I do not know. No. Yeah, so it's from Korea. Um, so during the Korean War, uh, there was this American soldier or American doctor who went to Korea who was supposed to treat burn victims, right? Mm-hmm. But instead, what he did is he developed this procedure, this double eyelid surgery, um, to make Korean and Asian women look more white, so they'd be more desirable to American GIs. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, so it was literally made to make. Asian women look more white so that white people would like them more. And I'm, I'm assuming this was like an experimental thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was definitely practiced on Asian prostitutes, Korean prostitutes. Oh, wow. um, but so it was pretty fucked. Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say that so loud. It was very fucked. But yeah, you know, when you trace the origins again, like it's working as intended. And kind of talking, kind of thinking over like the Asian male representation and experience and some of the negative stereotypes associated with with Asian um, American men. Can you kind of speak to can you speak to that topic and kind of like the root of of kind of where some of that rhetoric comes from and some of those negative stereotypes? Definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, I said the time, especially at OSC, which is surprising because it's only you know 7% Asian or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you know, every time I walk into the gym, it's always like insanely packed with Asian men um, or a lot of the Asian men I see, you know, they always like really work out a lot. And that's because, yeah, you know, being an Asian man, especially in Western society, like it's a super emasculated experience. Uh, I don't know, like <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people have heard it before, but a lot of Asian men really aren't seen as, you know, men in a hegemonic sense, a traditionally masculine sense, usually because of either the relationship they have a woman or just their physical prowess. So yeah, kind of tracing that back. This isn't obviously the the only reason why, but I did a little bit of research about US immigration practices um, Mm -hmm. for people from Asia, specifically uh, Asian men, Chinese men. And when we kind of look back at it, it all really starts with citizenship and everything that branches out from that. So we'll start with the gold rush. You had all these Chinese men coming in and U.S. capitalists are basically thrilled, right? You have all these people doing all this cheap labor. Um, yeah. They're just really looking for work. And it's a really exploitable market. Mm-hmm. So it's really similar to what we've seen now, actually, with you know people coming from South America or Latinx populations. Yeah. A lot of white workers got really threatened by that. You know, They're yep. really worried about losing their jobs. They're worried about <laughs> what this is going to mean for them. Um, yeah. right? It sounds really familiar. Yeah, but for sure. it happens anyways, because you have these, you know, this bourgeoisie who wants to exploit this Asian labor because it's so inexpensive. And so what really happens is, you know, these white middle, lower class Americans, they have to do something about it. So the first thing they really start doing is kind of building this notion of, you know, Asian men, like now they're weak, you know, they yep. can't do this. And it's really funny because, you know, Asian people in the past were characterized as these the strong, hard workers, yep, but yep. now it's so emasculated. So, you know, you start, you start building that idea, you know, these people can't do these jobs, these people can't do this work. But as time passes and, you know, obviously the white male gets what they want, um, immigration basically, it basically stops, right? They're like, okay, like Chinese men, you can't be citizens. Like you can't really come into this country. And most importantly, they've set this law that said anybody who marries someone not eligible for citizenship, they lose their citizenship, right? If they're a non or non-white. Yeah. So a non or non-white individual, they'll lose their citizenship. I think it was like early twenties when that happened actually. Um, so, right, it starts building this idea of Asian men can't connect to um, this nuclear family idea, this idea of men possessing women. So this starts building off, right? We look at um, Asian women dating American men or white men a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. In 1946, there was something called the Chinese War Bride Act, which said that. So first, to preface, 
Asian women were barely allowed in the country at all. Um, mm -hmm. Throughout the 1800s or the 1900s, the population of Chinese women for total Chinese in the in America never exceeded 7.2% of the Chinese population. So very few Asian women, because they weren't allowed in, because Americans thought that Asian women were going to turn to prostitution immediately, and America was going to get filled with prostitutes. But there was one exception, which is the Chinese War Bride Act of 46, 1946, which said American military men can bring in Asian wives to the country. So mm. the only Asian women entering the country really are with you know military members. And other than that, only 105 Chinese people are able to enter the country. So this starts building this idea that Asian men are kind of impotent and you know asexual and fully separate from this idea of possession of women. Um, and obviously, with you know traditional toxic masculinity, yeah. that's pretty important. So you have this going on, and then at the same time, obviously, since white workers don't want to lose their jobs, Asian men are getting pushed into fields that men don't want to do, which is usually laundry. Um, mm -hmm. I think at one point, uh, one in 12 Chinese men all worked in laundry. So they start entering these effeminized positions and they're exempt from nuclear families and they can't be a citizenship. They can't have, they can't be citizens. They can't build monetary capital or own land. And so all these things that really qualify one as being masculine in American society, Asian men have no access to. Um, and you know, this was until the fifties. So it's super recent yeah. and just these ideas and these stereotypes. They just got carried out um, super fully sure. into where we are now. And I think it's it's crazy because like when we think about the Asian American male and representation, especially within mass media, we don't see it a lot, right? Um, Not at all. You don't see you know the sexualization. You know you see black males over sexualized. You see Asian women over sexualized, but you really don't see that with Asian men. And to your point, with you know um, you know walking into the gym and seeing you know predominantly Asian males trying to you know you know work on their physique and stuff like that i think it kind of all plays into that that stereotype and that mindset of asian men you know not being sex sexualized and demasculating you know asian men um and i think like somebody have mentioned this in a previous episode but like you know tinder and these social social dating apps like black women and asian men are like the least swiped upon yeah right? yeah, yeah. like that dynamic um, that historical context that you just gave us is really interesting that it still plays out now, right? Because um, even exactly. I spent a little bit of time in the military and I remember seeing individuals with wives from Korea, because um, I, I believe there's a base in, in South Korea, um, yeah. you know, these white men would bring Asian women back to America and they didn't even speak English. And I'm just like, yo, yeah. what is that dynamic? You know, and then like looking at commercials, looking at you know, mass media and seeing like the white male as a focal point in interracial, you know, connections, whether it's with a light skinned black woman or an Asian woman um, in commercials, it's just like they continue to like subtly perpetuate that idea of, you know, over sexualizing Asian women and not, you know, allowing um, Asian men to have the proper representation. So um, it's kind of cool to hear the historical context and how that continues to perpetuate itself in present day. And like even, you know, you you mentioned, you know, Asian men and K-pop and how that kind of gave you the confidence and I guess swag in a way. Um, can you kind of speak to that? Like, what was that experience like you finding your own um, footing in, in just confidence? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really interesting to look at the way that Asian men have tried to really kind of regain some notions of masculinity. Mm -hmm. um, looking at me personally. Yeah, the reason K-pop helped so much was, I guess, honesty. You know, it feels kind of messed up to say now, 
but it was the first time that I guess you could say I'd seen Asian men sexualized.、Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was kind of a beauty standard that reflected me a lot more than Chris Hemsworth does,、um, <laughs> like The Rock.、Yeah. Um, and so when I saw it, and I saw these things, it kind of they were kind of what I wanted for myself already, right? It kind of looked like more leeway in terms of exploring what it meant to be feminine, and it was a way to connect to my culture, or you know, my ethnic culture, my cultural heritage.、Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of just really easy now. Uh, a re really easy way for me to navigate it. It was just honestly like it was convenient. Like when I look back on it, it just made the most sense because I, I wanted to feel more Korean.、Um, but kind of to your point with Asian men and black women, yeah. When you look at that <clears throat> relationship, it's because Asian men and African American men are like on opposite ends of the masculine spectrum. Like you have this black man who's hypersexualized, and this Asian man is emasculated. And、mm -hmm. this is a pretty new new thought for me. But when I look at Um, a lot of the Asian American people around me, I think, because of that that difference between people, I've seen a lot of them turning to appropriating, or maybe not appropriating, but incorporating a lot of traditionally African American culture into their stuff,、uh, into who they are. You know, using Ave for the music they listen to, or the way they dress, or、uh, just even the people that they're interested in,、um, or even the way that they try to like bodybuild.、Um, a lot of it, because this is my own idea, but When you have these, or sports especially like basketball,、mm -hmm. when you have these characteristics that have been so typically associated with hyper masculinity, it、mm -hmm. only makes sense that someone who wants to gain more masculinity、um, really leans into that. You know, some people might call it, you know, I want to be more cool, but it all comes back to masculinity, in my own opinion. Yeah,、um, for sure. So it's been really interesting. Yeah, I think I've seen a TikTok about that.、Um, I wish I could pull it up, but it was a TikTok <laughs> that kind of like kind of leans into your point to where like you know. Um, Asian men have been so, so I guess drug in society in regards to masculinity that they do they look at black men and they appropriate black culture in some ways to kind of make up for that that gap. So、yeah. um, I, I think that's I mean that's a valid point. It's a valid point.、Um, so I lead a club at OSU.、Uh, it's called People of Color in Business. So、mm -hmm. it focuses on supporting the identities of. Students of color learning within the College of Business in ways that the in institution fails to or neglects to provide.、Mm -hmm. But I had this conversation. I guess it was a few weeks ago with、um, the Asia Pacific American Student Union Club, massive club, like 120 people a meeting.、Jeez. We kind of talked about, yeah, it's really cool. That kind of fifth gen, sixth gen experience or cultural、mm -hmm. isolation. You know, when you feel alienated from your one community, you know, all these people feel isolated from their cultural heritage. That's also something. That forms a new community because in that shared isolation, you have that collective experience. So when I look at people of color in business and the club that I'm trying to make or helping to to make, and the space we create, it really has been a big matter, kind of putting these positive aspects and these positive notions back into being a person of color. Like look at these communities that are possible, and look at the richness and cultural diversity that you can bring in, and these shared common experiences, the power that's built, and this intellectual capacity.、Um, And look what you can do with all of that, and it's also been really important in avoiding that compassion fatigue, right? Like, God,、yeah. like, why should I even be a person of color? Like, this is so exhausting. Like, I'm so tired. I wish I could check out. Like, why would you <laughs> want to check out? Right? Look at everything、yeah. it brings. But speaking to like sometimes, you know, doing the the POC,、um, being Mr. POC, and, and doing the brand in which I operate for trying、mm -hmm. to provide, you know, a product and experience for people of color. Um, it gets exhaustive sometimes, so I will. I will say sometimes I do want to check out, but those moments are like few and far between、um, because it is exhaustive, right? It, it is exhaustive, especially dealing with 
like um from a business standpoint um having to learn marketing and you know it's just like marketing these days is just ever evolving and it's just like you gotta have TikTok, you gotta do this you gotta so it's just like i think that part of it gets exhaustive but my passion for community my passion for um you know creating impact never really subsides it never it never it's never daunting because i know like um i know the history right i know that you know where we come from and i know we still have a long way to go so it, it's inspiring seeing people like you and hearing your story and hearing your passion and your fervor for the things you kind of want to talk about and, and the 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 people that you want to represent it just kind of it energizes me as a business owner um just to keep going right so to have you Definitely. in a position um a leadership position um it's really dope it's really cool to see that you know you're having an impact in a real way um and you're creating community i'm all about community um community is something that's really big for me and the brand and the impact that i want to have so it's really cool to see um you doing the work that you're doing with the uh poc uh, business business club at osu thank you yeah uh I mean, it, it's super exhausting for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I say all the time, like, it's like, I feel like that club has given me like my highest highs and like the lowest lows. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 for but sure. I know. At the end of the, yeah, at the end of the day, it's like something that I kind of remind myself. Um, it's like, I mean, it's not really a choice, right? Like, I mean, yeah, like you could check out to an extent and then being, you know, uh, half white and Asian and like economically privileged, I can check out to a much higher extent than other people. Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, like, I'm a better for the people around me. I'm better for the people after me. And I'm a better for myself because we deserve better, right? Mm -hmm. We're entitled to it. Um, so it's like, even at those moments, it's like, you know, like we got to get there one way or another. Um, but even but even speaking to that, you know, both sides, right? You know, privilege and you're learning about um, your identity in a way that, that you can empathize, right? You can create community. You can speak, um, you know, from medical metaphoric standpoint you can speak two different language right you can speak privilege talk you can speak coming from money and you can also speak culture right so and i think combining those two things puts you in a unique position to then impute i guess education and the different perspectives amongst people who may not might not have that that experience so i think it's a really um i think it's a really cool position to be in you know having seen haven't seen both sides right um you've seen success you know what success looks like you know what money management looks like um and now you're dealing with individuals who are seeking that knowledge and you've seen it right so i think it's cool i think it's cool um yeah no i appreciate you saying that you know i never really thought about it like that um i know the little headline down there says imposter syndrome i would say for me you know being in this position of leadership as someone who is, you know, from an economic an economically privileged background and being, you know, in such close proximity to my privilege, there's been a pretty heavy level of, I guess you could call it imposter syndrome, but also guilt and feeling like, you know, am I entitled to this position of leadership? Because when I think about this people of color space and I think about the space I create that I'm creating, you know, I obviously have so much, I have anti-blackness within me and these ideologies. And I don't understand a lot of these perspectives from people from different economic backgrounds or people who are immigrants. Um, and so obviously, you know, like one person can't create that space. You got to bring other people in around you. But it's definitely been a feeling of guilt and feeling like, you know, what entitles me to this position? Like, I mean, at the end of the day with social justice, if you want to do the work, like there's so much work to do, like everybody can put their work in. That's very invited. 
But sometimes the thing that really does motivate me for better, for worse, is that feeling of guilt, right? If I'm mm -hmm. the person who's privileged enough to be in this position, like, like I better make the most out of it. Um, and so it's training sometimes, but at the same time, like, you know, it keeps me moving. Um, but it's been interesting for sure. So kind of learning a little bit about your mother and her experience, can you kind of talk about your dad and that relationship and that dynamic with that side of the family um, and kind of how that plays into like your, bi your biracial identity? Yeah. Um, so just to give some background, my dad, he's from the East Coast, uh, small town in Massachusetts. His dad's from like, uh, I think Iowa, like a farming town in Iowa. His mom's born and raised. So a pretty traditional white family for sure. Not super economically privileged, mm -hmm. like middle, middle, lower class, um, up until my dad, who's a lawyer. But yeah, it's been really interesting. And it's kind of what's bred this idea in my head that I feel like when white parents are going to be the, the parents of children of color, like they should do some research for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like, yeah, you know, having a white dad, there's been a lot of points of conflict, uh, points of tension. I think first and foremost, even in terms of like my own ideologies, like I think it's a pretty common process for people of color kind of starting to see more more things in racialized terms. But like I do hold anti-white sentiment like within me, like it's undeniable. Um, obviously, it's not towards white individuals. It's more of the systems that they created in capitalism. Yeah. But it's undeniable that that does extend itself to my dad a little bit. Um, and, you know, just in like my own experiences with him, like, of course, there are microaggressions that exist there. Um, you know, comments here, comments there, like always wanting us to go talk to Asian families when we're anywhere. Um, I get it. Like, that's really cool. Like, I appreciate, like, I would feel more comfortable talking to them, but it also sets this notion of like alienation. Um, so yeah, you know, I think just that aspect has been interesting, but even more um, interesting has been the intersection of masculinity in it yeah, and my cool. kind of Asian masculinity and his hegemonic white masculinity. Cause you know, uh, I don't know where we're going to put this, but I've definitely talked today about how, uh, for me, I've really embraced more of the femininity that exists within me in terms of, you know, style and expression and my interests mm -hmm. and even the way I interact with other people. And my dad is very traditionally masculine. So when I did start embracing, you know, my, my Korean background and feeling more masculine through navigating mm -hmm. that stuff, I felt insane pushback from him for it. Um, you know, I mean, I wear like a bunch of pearls on my neck, like my ears are super fierce. I obviously like my jewelry. And that's just not what he what he was into. So it was kind of the split of I was trying to navigate my Asian masculinity and what that looked like for me and explore my own realm of masculinity. And then he had this idea of what it meant to be a man. And there was like this, this big Clash. conflict. It definitely still yeah. exists. Yeah. Um, but it's just almost been like, you know, like my two cultural turmoil existing um, within me. And, you know, I've navigated it pretty well, I'd like to think. And there's not a single story for what kind of masculinity looks like for each cultural background. Yeah, but sure. especially when you're navigating, different. especially when you're navigating two that are grossly different, right? So um, it sounds like you've kind of created your own lane in regards to just being who you are. Like Jeffrey is Jeffrey. Yeah. Jeffrey is going to be Jeffrey. And um, I think it's cool how you've kind of combined in a way you know, your Asian heritage and, you know, the, the K-pop culture. Um, and you've really embraced that and you've really like kind of ran with that. So I can, I can see how, you know, his, his American white, you know, privileged masculine, you know, perspective can kind of clash with you kind of finding your own footing in your own masculinity. 
um and femininity too as well so i think that's i think that's dope i think it's dope how you've been able to kind of etch out your own you-ness yeah um obviously i just want to preface that if you're listening you know i love you um i just want to you know clear the air but yeah kind of like what you said and i think like if i could give a piece of advice for people kind of like you know me five years ago i guess you could say navigating the stuff and kind of what you touched on it's like when you look at how to navigate this stuff like it's not a matter of you forcing yourself to any mold because that's not it's just not how it is mm -hmm. it's a matter of seeing how all these collective things around you have influenced you mm -hmm. um like even ethnically i identify more as asian american than korean american uh have you heard like the terminology like an ethnic boundary i have not no yeah so kind of like when you determine ethnicity an ethnic boundary says that you know if you're from this one culture it's been so impactful on you that you would feel out of place in any other culture because of it so right if someone's from korea and they go to you know france they're probably going to be and live in france for 10 years like korean american or korean french mm -hmm. um so for me when i look at my own ethnicity i identify as asian american because i'm i might be genetically korean but when yeah. I really get down to it, I'm not really that Korean, right? Yeah. I've experienced a large range of cultures and I've kind of pulled from that in a way that feels best to me, not in an, a, an appropriation way, of course. But so yeah, just in any regard in any intersection, like when you try to figure out your place in everything, it's your, it's not about like your place in that, it's all of that's place in you, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. How, how that's sure, led to sure. your own yeah like your own your own being and kind of navigating that in the way that makes sense for you like for don't sure. force a mold because you won't fit it yeah for sure and a question that i like to close out with um that i try to remember to ask every guest is uh, you know always you know for people who listen they kind of hear this all the time but i always describe it as going back into this time machine right if you yeah. go if you can go into a time machine and talk to your younger self um you know being being the person that you are today what are some of the things that you would go back in time and tell your younger self um, and prepare your younger self for man i would probably say i'd want to go back to kind of the start of my you know self-perceived racialization and kind of say you know give yourself space to process this anger you're fully fully valid in feeling it but mm -hmm. make sure you understand like what's your end goal what are you working towards and what should you probably work on navigating so you don't actually end up perpetuated things you're trying to take down because like, this anger that i have like that's it's really not community help it's not it's not healing right it's going to keep people separate at the end of the day so kind of going back to them maybe better navigating it yeah for sure for sure and i think like even even when me starting poc i was so focused on this like forest bias mentality us versus yeah. them mentality that i think it really took away from my my message and i think like you know that that loving component you know having that that community aspect and i, I know you kind of talked about community a lot um you know when you were talking about the club um i think creating a community of like-minded people that are passionate about equity that are passionate about change it's how we it's how we move forward right so yeah. um you know having this collective group of people from different backgrounds right from being biracial being adopted being multiracial being um you know what we perceive as black asian you know asian american first gen sixth gen like we all have something to bring to the table um, and it takes a collective effort to really bring about change. So um, uh, I think, yeah, all in all, I think you killed this episode. This episode was really <laughs> dope. Um, you talked on a lot of things. You brought a lot of historical context to 
two things that, you know, of course, me, you know, being in the world that I live in, you know, mass media, I'm um, hearing about the, you know, the the mass migration, hearing about the double eyelid surgery, like for you to kind of bring context and the, his, the historical perspective to that um, and, and, you know, kind of whip it around to present day how, and how that's still perpetuated. That was extremely dope. Like I got to commend yeah. you for just being well versed and uh, I don't know, sharing your story with the platform. Like it's I, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Yeah, it was cool. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's cool, too, because it like. I've been so drained from like the club stuff, but mm-hmm. I haven't even done like a ton of education. But like, as soon as I was like, yeah, like we're doing this, I was like, oh shit, like I gotta go read a little bit more. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, it kind of like reignites that passion to kind of like educate, you know, it really makes it more, I feel like doing this work, like it's really important to understand like the impact you're having like around you and feeling energized yeah, and letting the people sure. around you help energize you. Like it's not you versus everyone. Yeah, like, you for, know? Sure. for sure, for sure. And I think that, uh. I don't know with this podcast platform again i just wanted to I, I i used to spend so much time trying to find like oh let me let me you know try to find a person with a blue check or let me try to find this person that yada 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 um when i just kind of broke it down and i humbled myself and i'm just like damn i got you know almost twelve thousand people that are following my brain who they got some shit to say themselves so and that's going to wrap up this week's episode. I want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to tap in with the Color Reimagine podcast presented to you by People of Color Clothing. And a special shout out to Jeffrey for sharing his time, his energy, his essence, and his knowledge um, with us. It's It was a very enlightening episode for me personally. I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like I'm walking away from this interview experience enlightened. And I have some new information to research, some new information in my tool belt. So... Um, And that's what our platform is about. It's all about capturing community voices, giving people the platform to to share their story, share their voice, share their experience. And that's what this platform has become. And that's what this platform is going to be. So, again, thank you for listening to the Color Reimagined podcast. And again, if you want to be a part of the podcast experience, all you got to do is hit us up via email via dm whatever hit me up tell me when tell me where tell me what you want to talk about and it's done again thank you for listening to the color reimagine podcast presented to you by people of color clothing and until next time take care